examined or did I see Brad Omland hobnobbing with a big Hollywood celebrity over the weekend I I did that sounds sounds like fun I saw the pictures it's uh that's great stuff did you have a good time yeah I mean we're old friends at this point yeah um, I've known him for seven years now uh, had fun down there in Omaha which is known as people have said that if Minnesota or Minneapolis did not have sports teams it would just mm-hmm. be a cold Omaha <laughs> so, I uh, enjoyed my time down there, seeing some old friends from high school, and sure. then I went to South Dakota on Sunday and watched the Vikings game with some friends from college. So it was sounds a good, good weekend, sounds good, solid. Well, you know, coming the, back into the week, no, go the ahead. The person was T.J. Miller from Deadpool. Okay, I didn't want to. If if you didn't want to drop it, I didn't want to drop it. But yeah, T.J. Miller, a funny guy. Good stuff. And he does stand-up. Apparently apparently that's where he started, was on the stage doing stand-up. Yeah, I knew him before he did stand-up before I... Well, I guess I had seen Cloverfield, but yeah. you know he wasn't really big at that time. But uh, yeah, I first got hooked because of his stand-up, and now he's in big movies. Sure, sure. American success story. We love those around here. A little weird, but sure. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they often are. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, streaming at Radio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows. We got a special on there from going into the weekend. I did a, a special episode where we ran down eight things government can't do for you. And, you know, self-serving though it may be, I nonetheless highly recommend you go check that out if you missed it. Uh, it was an opportunity to you know, examine in deeper and broader fashion the ideas that we bring to bear when we analyze the news on a night-to-night basis here. And you can find that by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up for you. Join us tonight, 651-989-5855. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show. So coming out of the weekend... During which, you know, it's kind of become customary for me to purposely avoid the news over the weekend, even though from a from a professional aspect in terms of being a a commentator might not be the best plan. But for my own mental health, it's absolutely essential. Like I have to have a period of time that I carve out where I'm just not paying attention to what's going on in the world and can actually reconnect with just being a normal human being with normal human relationships and experiencing life through the, the, the perspective that God designed us to have, which is what's immediately in front of your face, who's immediately with you and just enjoying life as it comes on a bandwidth that we are actually created to experience. Very important. Uh, be that as it may, came back into the week now, and the big controversy, it's funny because when I'm in that mode, that mode of kind of hunkering down and intentionally avoiding the news, I'll still get, because I live in 2018 high-tech world, I still get inklings of what's going down, what the big headlines are. And when I first started hearing these inklings about the Kavanaugh sexual assaults allegations i i I honestly thought and i know this is naive like in retrospect it's totally naive but i honestly thought you know 
there's no way that Repo- that Democrats, particularly in this state, in Minnesota, there's no way that Democrats are going to latch onto this and push it very hard because they would they'd be so obviously hypocritical. Their own deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee, who's running for attorney general here in this state, Keith Ellison, is currently under withering accusation from his ex-girlfriend, who's come out and made very specific allegations that are recent in nature, having to do with with his personality and his character today. And when you compare the two, the nature of the two accusations, I mean, it's night and day in terms of credibility and detail and context and just you you would be you'd have to be an idiot to on the one hand embrace Keith Ellison and on the other hand also embrace these accusations against Brett Kavanaugh well like I say that was my immediate knee-jerk instinctive reaction and it was extraordinarily naive because, of course, the Democrats are capable of that. Of course, the lefties are capable of being blatantly and horrendously hypocritical when it comes to hashtag me too and the like. Let's get into it here. The Washington Post has uh, the most recent breakdown of this accusation. The accuser has now identified herself. She's now come out and uh, given more of an explanation of what her accusation is and we're going to we're going to cover this just to give a baseline and then I want to get into some of the reaction because it's it's all very telling to me. So from the Washington Post earlier this summer, Christine Blasey Ford wrote a confidential letter to a senior Democratic lawmaker alleging that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her more than 3 decades ago when they were high school students in suburban Maryland. Since Wednesday, she has watched as that threadbare bones version of her story became public without her name or her consent, drawing a blanket denial from Kavanaugh and roiling a nomination that just days ago seemed all but certain to succeed. Now, Ford has decided that if her story is going to be told, she wants to be the one to tell it. Speaking publicly for the first time, Ford said that one summer in the early 1980s, Kavanaugh and a friend, both stumbling drunk, Ford alleges, corralled her into a bedroom during a gathering of teenagers at a house in Montgomery County. While his friend watched, she said, Kavanaugh pinned her to a bed on her back and groped her over her clothes, grinding his body against hers and clumsily attempting to pull off her one-piece bathing suit and the clothing she wore over it. When she tried to scream, she said, he put his hand over her mouth. I thought he might inadvertently kill me, said Ford, now a 51-year-old research psychologist in Northern California. He was trying to attack me and remove my clothing. Ford said she was able to escape when Kavanaugh's friend and classmate at Georgetown Preparatory School, Mark Judge, jumped on top of them, sending all three tumbling. She said she ran from the room, briefly locked herself in a bathroom, and then fled the house. Ford said she told no one of the incident in any detail until 2012 when she was in couples therapy with her husband. The therapist's notes, portions of which were provided by Ford and reviewed by the Washington Post, do not mention Kavanaugh's name, but say she reported that she was attacked by students from an elitist boys' school who went on to become highly respected and highly ranking members of society in Washington. The notes say four boys were involved, a discrepancy Ford says was an error on the therapist's part. Ford said there were four boys at the party, but only two in the room. 
Notes from the individual therapy session the following year when she was being treated for what she says have been long-term effects of the incident, Shofor describing a rape attempt in her late teens. In an interview, her husband, Russell Ford, said that in the 2012 sessions, he recounted being trapped in a room with two drunken boys, or she recounted being trapped in a room with two drunken boys, one of whom pinned her to a bed, molested her, and prevented her from screaming. He said he recalled that his wife used Kavanaugh's last name and voiced concern that Kavanaugh, then a federal judge, might one day be nominated to the Supreme Court. I'm sorry, that's BS. Like, her, her concern in 2012 was that this guy might one day be nominated to the Supreme Court. That was a vocalized, focused point of concern. That was on her bullet point list of things she was concerned about as she reflected back upon this 30-year-old experience of, I I just, I don't know, one day, there's a very high likelihood, 2012, mind you, when we had the election taking place for Barack Obama's second term, and, you know, Mitt Romney was the candidate. At that point, at some point in her consideration, while reflecting upon a 30-year-old sexual assault incident, was whether or not her assailant was going to be nominated to the Supreme Court. B as in B, S as in S, do not believe it for one second. On Sunday, the White House sent the Post a statement Kavanaugh issued last week when he, the outlines of Ford's account became public. He said, I categorically and unequivocally deny this accusation. I did not do this back in high school or at any time. And so there's your, your mainstream media report of what has taken place. Diane Feinstein, the senator who, you know, notably without the consent of the alleged victim in this case, made public this story, this accusation, under obvious political motive, right, is coming under fire because of some follow-up comments that she made. This from the Daily Wire. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein has come under heavy fire from both sides of the aisle for her handling of the unsubstantiated accusation against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh about an alleged sexual assault dating back 36 years when the accuser and Kavanaugh were both in high school. Feinstein only ramped up the pressure on herself on Tuesday with a comment she is now scrambling to walk back. Speaking to Fox News Tuesday, Feinstein said she can't say everything's truthful about the accusation from California professor Christine Blasey Ford. Ford said Feinstein is a woman that has been, I think, profoundly impacted on this. Ford's Chad Pergram reports, I can't say that everything is truthful. I don't know. Feinstein had it. She doesn't know. But she's willing to throw it out there as part of a nomination process in order to throw you know, a wrench in the gears, even though she doesn't know about the credibility of it. Fantastic. So, you know, the, all, here's what I'm looking for from our, our lefty listeners, of whom I know there are a few, and from Democrats generally. I'm just looking for a little bit of consistency, okay? That's all I'm asking for here. I'm not, I'm not asking that you believe the accuser of Keith Ellison or that you condemn the accuser, this Christine Ford uh, of Brett Kavanaugh. I'm just asking that whatever principles or process you're bringing to bear of your, of your analysis of one, you apply equally to your analysis of the other. And whatever you prescribe as a result for one, you also prescribe for the other. That's what I'm asking for. Consistency. Principle. I don't understand how you can look yourself in the mirror. Forget about the politics aspect of it. You know, I, I get politics is what it is. I'm talking about you personally, like in your soul. How do you look yourself in the mirror 
And in one hand, except this vague, long-time past accusation raised by a, a political opponent at a politically opportune moment and embrace it wholeheartedly and say we must believe and we must take seriously and we must give it full credence and credibility and at the same time cast your vote at the DFL State Central Committee to endorse Keith Ellison for Attorney General after learning about the the accusations, which are far more credible, by the way, in terms of both their content and their proximity to now and the source who came out personally and described everything in detail without being cajoled, without being drug into the spotlight by an opportunistic U.S. senator. I, I don't understand how you do those two things and look yourself in the mirror and say, yep, that's I'm perfectly content with myself. This is perfectly consistent. The, Democrats, you know, now, you know, I'm going to say this knowing that it's laughable, okay? But I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to put it out there because it's true and needs to be said. Democrats need to decide whether or not they actually care about sexual assault and the victims of sexual assault and the process by which we examine accusations of sexual assault. They need to decide whether they actually care about any of that or if they only care about political utility. And again, I say that knowing that it's laughable. And this is, this is consistent with many of the things, many of the avenues down which we have traveled in our analysis of the left over the course of this program, which has revealed time and time again that they don't actually care about victims of any kind from any pedigree in any context. They don't care about victims at all. They only only care about the political utility they can milk, they can leverage out of particular cases and particular narratives and memes. And that's that's morally reprehensible. And it ought to be called out as such. And they ought to be demanded that, that they answer for it by the media, which stands by and abates them. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Look, I personally, I have no idea either way with either of these men, whether you're talking about Keith Ellison or you're talking about Brett Kavanaugh. I wasn't there in either case. I don't have eyewitness testimony in either case. But what I can say is that I'm applying a consistent process to my analysis of both. I'm not discounting the possibility that Brett Kavanaugh did, in fact, engage in the behavior as described by his accuser, Ms. Ford. It, it's entirely possible. But I don't accept it as a prima facie reality in the absence of substantiating, corroborating evidence, right? And similarly, when I look at the Keith Ellison situation, I don't accept the word of his accuser at face value, but I do take into consideration the broader context in which the accusation has been made, and it strikes me as overall, when all things are considered, 
being much more credible than the accusation that's been leveled against Kavanaugh. And yet, the reaction from Democrats, particularly in this state, Minnesota DFLers, has been on the one hand to completely dismiss and even shame Ellison's accuser, while at the same time taking as at face value, giving prima facie credibility to the notion that Brett Kavanaugh's accuser is 100% accurate without any further consideration or asking for any further evidence or corroboration or even asking basic contextual questions such as, why did you sit on this for 30 years? Why now? Why is it being brought forward now? And indeed, you know, it, we, we do have a partial answer to that, right? It wasn't brought forward by the actual accuser. It was brought forward by Diane Feinstein in the context of a confirmation hearing. So nakedly political, right? And so, you know, th- that's all I'm asking for here is a little bit of consistency. I, I don't think it's too much to ask. Matt Walsh as usual, as can be expected, has a fine take on this whole thing over the Daily Wire. He writes, what a credible rape accusation looks like. The buzz phrase of the week seems to be credibly accused. The left says that Brett Kavanaugh has been credibly accused of sexual assault. The term is littered all over Twitter where liberals have unanimously declared Christine Ford's story credible. Far be it for me to credibly accuse them of calling accusations credible for purely political reasons, but I'm not sure how else they could have arrived at that conclusion. When I look at the situation, I see a politically partisan accuser who never told anyone her story for 30 years and only went public after the accused was nominated for the Supreme Court. She doesn't remember the date of the alleged crime or even the exact year. She doesn't remember exactly where it happened or how she ended up there. She says that she and the accused were both kids at the time and both drinking alcohol. Her story has changed at least once and significantly between the first time she brought it up in a 2012 and now. This seems like a rather low bar for credible. But where should we set the bar? Well, I think we could be helpful or it could be helpful to consider by way of example an actually credible rape accusation. I am not looking to play the what about game here. I just think it's important that we have some standard for calling an accusation credible. After all, a man has already been convicted in the court of public opinion the moment the word credible is tacked onto an accusation. It is important that we don't throw the word around carelessly. So, consider Juanita Broderick, who accused Bill Clinton of raping her in 1978, right around the time that Ford says Kavanaugh assaulted her. But that is where the similarities in their stories end. Here is Broderick's allegation as reported by BuzzFeed. Broderick, then 35, first met Bill Clinton when he was 31 and the Attorney General of Arkansas during a campaign stop he made at her nursing home. They discussed her business and his campaign. Broderick wasn't much into politics, but she had recently started volunteering for him with a friend. And Clinton told Broderick to call his office if she was ever in nearby Little Rock. A few weeks later, she did just that while attending a nursing seminar there. They arranged to meet one morning in the coffee shop in the hotel where the seminar was held. At the last second, Clinton called up Broderick's room and asked if they could meet there instead, since there were reporters in the lobby below. She said yes. Minutes after entering her room, he tried to kiss her, she says, biting her upper lip. Hard. Shocked, Broderick says she resisted Clinton. He ignored her, she says, and pushed her on the bed and raped her. Afterwards, she says, he put his sunglasses on and told her to get some ice for her swollen lips before leaving the room. 
Two of Broderick's friends, who had also attended the nursing conference, found Broderick in tears, her lips swollen and blue. She told them what had happened, but made them swear not to tell anyone else. She was scared of retaliation, didn't think anyone would believe her, and blamed herself for allowing Clinton to come up to her room. Broderick knows the exact day and location of her assault. She has two witnesses who found her in tears with a swollen lip. She told them what happened. It's true that she didn't come forward publicly with this story for another 20 years, but she wasn't completely silent for those two decades. What's more, she had a very compelling reason to keep quiet all those years. Clinton was a powerful man at the time of the attack and only became more powerful as time went on. Also, according to Broderick, Clinton's own wife had threatened her in a thinly veiled way. Finally, adding even more credibility to Broderick's account, Clinton has been accused by multiple women. There's an established pattern of behavior. He is a known liar and a known pervert. Broderick's story is not only detailed, not only corroborated by two people who witnessed the immediate aftermath of the attack, but it fits into the overall picture of Bill Clinton. Credible? Broderick's case is far more than credible. It's overwhelming. She leaves you with no conceivable reason to disbelieve her. To side with Bill Clinton is to trust the word of a pathological liar and notorious womanizer over the detailed account of a woman who has gained absolutely nothing from telling her story. That's the other important element of this. Broderick didn't come forward until Bill Clinton was in his second presidential term. She wasn't some devout right-winger running into the scene of a, a week before the 1992 election. If this were a politically motivated smear, it would mean Broderick is brilliant and enormously stupid all at the same time. Brilliant for concocting such a compelling story and sticking to it so convincingly for so long, but stupid for waiting until the guy had already been elected governor twice and president twice to finally set her plan in motion. That's Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire pointing out that, you know, perhaps we ought to have some sort of standard by which we determine an accusation is credible. And perhaps that standard should be more than just whether or not it's politically convenient for our side. 651-989-5855. We'll take your calls when we return. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Max Reimer of Kip and Max Save the World, which you can find at KipandMax.com. And uh, now we can also say occasional guest host here on Closing Argument, along with our very own Brad Omland, uh, has a tweet on this that is hits the nail pretty well on the head. And I'm glad he made this tweet because I saw him put this out on, on Facebook earlier, but it wasn't public. And so I couldn't disclose it or I didn't feel comfortable disclosing it. But now that he's tweeted it, this is what he had to say. Caring about sexual assault accusers or not believing them at all in 2018 is nearly 100% based on who you want it to hurt politically. A putrid politics for a putrid society. And indeed, that is where we find ourselves. That's it. And like I say, all I'm asking for is consistency. Have a, a standard that you've developed independently and rationally for determining the credibility of accusations and what sort of action should be taken as a result, and then apply that to the circumstances as you find them, as you see them, rather than tailoring your approach to what has the most political utility. But asking the Democrats to do that is, you know, asking them to go against their very nature. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 
Appreciate you joining us. 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. Let's talk to Mark in St. Louis Park. Thanks for holding. Walter, just driving, uh, just driving home, just, just a quick comment. I used to be a Democrat. I go to Democratic caucuses. Mm-hmm. And when I went, uh, any crime, even murder, I'm not going to short of murder, any crime that was that uh, committed by a minor should not only um, not affect you as an adult, should be held against your adult, but it should be expunged. This is the, these are the same Democrats and liberals who uh, said anything done by a minor should not affect you as an adult and actually should be expunged. And these are the same people that were cheering when Barack Obama pardoned drug kingpins, selling drugs, poison that was killing people and killing communities. These are the same Democrats. And this guy hasn't been charged, I mean, convicted. No, there's, no, there's been no criminal charge. Nothing. Right. right. But they're after him. They're total frauds. Yeah. The same Democrats who want minors to be helped to have everything expunged, not being held responsible for what they do when they hit adults. Uh, they're, they're totally opposite on this one. They've totally, completely changed within a couple of days. What frauds? And I'll hang up and listen. I appreciate the, the thoughts, Mark. And again, you know, regardless of where you land on any of that, whether or not you think that's a good idea to expunge the, the criminal activity of minors, the, the point is, if you've articulated that as your position, if you've articulated that as your standard, then apply the standard, right? Like, what? It, because one of two things is possible. Either you're genuinely concerned about due process and the experience of victims, or you're not. And when you're not consistent as to how you're approaching different accusations of sexual assault, and there's very clearly a different process that you're utilizing depending upon who it benefits politically or who it harms politically, that conveys pretty clearly that you don't actually care about either due process or the experience of victims at all. Let's talk to Ted in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Hi. Hey, um, I don't know if you remember the first time Keith Ellison ran to Congress. There were several articles in the Star Tribune listing all the skeletons in his closet, and there were many of them. Mm-hmm. And they you know, like one of them, was, he had like 100 parking tickets he didn't pay. He had unpaid taxes. Uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff. And you don't hear any of that brought up now, but last weekend there was an article in the Minneapolis Star Tribune talking about his, you know, how he's overcoming these recent troubles. And in the middle of the article, in bold headline, it said, and he was a phenomenal lawyer. And then they quoted some guy that was a friend of his saying that he used to go in and listen to his closing arguments because they were so good. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, if he was such a phenomenal lawyer, he would have never got into politics. And, uh, <laughs> I think somebody needs to go get those Star Tribune articles from the first time he ran for mm-hmm. Congress and get that list of uh, skeletons in his closet. And maybe that is really pertinent to somebody who's running for attorney general. Hmm. Somebody that disobeyed the law wouldn't pay their parking tickets, wouldn't pay their taxes. Yeah. Several other things. In there. Yeah. I, I appreciate the thought, Ted. I mean, I don't discount that that's relevant uh, to voters' consideration. I question whether or not that's going to tip the scale for folks one way or the other at this point. Because, you know, look at what we know 
about Keith Ellison. I mean, the things we know about him that are beyond dispute, you know, his his uh, past associations with the Nation of Islam, with Louis Farrakhan, uh, things he said about Israel and and uh, Jewish people, uh, the and forget about all that, you know, selling, setting all of that aside, which is substantial. Just look at what he wants to do. Look at what he stands for. Look at his ideology. Look at for the policies that he's come out and publicly supported. Look at the fact that he took a picture with the handbook for Antifa, that he supports these violent criminals who are out there trespassing and assaulting people in order to affect some kind of socialist revolution. I mean, if all of that isn't enough to convince people that Keith Ellison should never, ever have their vote for dog catcher, then I'm not sure going back however many years and, and looking up a bunch of unpaid parking tickets is necessarily going to gonna move the needle on that. But, you know, not to say that there isn't value in getting a, a fuller picture of who the guy is. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yep. You know, I heard the outrage and uh, I think one of your callers earlier, but I guess I look at this situation a little differently in terms of how the Democrats are approach this, and it's just their M.O. that they are so hungry for power, it's by any means necessary. Yeah. And there's also, there's social movements that are going on, and in respect, the narrative seems to have been for many decades is just men are evil, they're dogs. When you go into the court system, if you have to go into a contested divorce, many times a man is put at a disadvantage. And you'll also see that women, when there's crimes that they commit, they're not given the same sex that a man is. So there's almost this predisposition that men are already put at a disadvantage. And in the case of Kavanaugh here, we've got 36 years, apparently, that have passed. Mm-hmm. Now, as it pertains to social movement, I don't know if you've heard of MGTOW, but men, it's very hazardous to get involved with women. And if you may have even heard of the Graham rule, I'm referring to the preacher Billy Graham would never allow himself right, to be right, alone right. in a room yeah, with right. a woman. That was a standard to live yep. by. Which is mocked today, which is mocked. We Not only is that mocked, but then the variation that uh, Mike Pence had, you, you, you recall the, the left mocking him and ridiculing him because he had this personal deal that he made with his wife where he's like, look, I'm never going to have dinner with another woman alone without you. Like if I'm going to meet an employee or somebody who I'm working with on the campaign or you know, just any woman generally, it's going to be. In your company, in your presence, I'm not going to engage in social uh, rendezvous with women that I'm not married to. He was mocked for that, and that was rooted in the same basic idea. I appreciate your call as always, Mike, which is that, you know, you, it, it, I, it stuns me that I even have to articulate it, but I clearly do. If you conduct yourself in an honorable way in the little things you're not going to find yourself in a position where you're either, one, able to be accused of something like this, and two, in a position to be victimized by something like this. 
the, a little bit of discretion goes a long way for all parties involved. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. Some other things going on as of late from Politico. President Donald Trump moved on Monday to immediately release a bunch of former FBI director James Comey's text messages and declassify 20 pages of a surveillance application that targeted former campaign advisor Carter Page. Trump's latest offensive against a Russia investigation that has ensnared associates and has consumed his attention for much of his presidency. The breadth of the order came as a surprise and landed amid a full-court White House effort to shore up the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh as he defends himself against a sexual assault allegation. Trump demanded that the FBI produce 20 pages of the surveillance application, which Republicans on Capitol Hill have suggested would help show anti-Trump bias at the highest levels of the FBI. Trump also called for the release of senior Justice Department official Bruce Orr's notes related to the Russia probe. Orr was a key conduit to the FBI for information provided by Christopher Steele, a former British spy who investigated Trump's relationship with Russia during the 2016 campaign and produced a dossier of damaging allegations, which Trump has derided as false. Steele was hired by a firm that in turn had been tapped by Democrats to produce opposition research on Trump, a fact that Republicans have argued discredits Steele's findings and suggests the FBI relied on a partisan document to pursue allegations that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians to influence the election. Now, I, I, I love how the Politico reports all of that as if it, Republicans have claimed, you know, like it's a Republican characterization. That's true. Like everything they say there is just true. That's not what Republicans believe. It's factually correct. Steele was hired by a a firm that was hired by Democrats to produce opposition research on Trump. The FBI did rely on partisan documentation to pursue their allegations of Russian collusion and indeed a questionable FISA warrant. All of that is factually correct. And so it's, it's a journalistic choice, an editorial choice, I should say, to present all of that as if it's just a Republican opinion as opposed to the facts. And when you compare and contrast that to the way they report things that that make Republicans look bad, for instance, the Brett Kavanaugh thing, right? The Brett Kavanaugh accusation is presented as, you know, on just on its face as what it is on its own merits, take it or leave it at the at the very worst and then or at the very best and then, you know, if they're really feeling particularly partisan that day, they'll try to frame it in such a way as to give it even more credibility than it deserves at face value. You know, and whenever you see, and this this goes to what uh, Brad refers to as his Omelin reporting rule, the notion that you should probably be the one who articulates it, Brad. The Omelin reporting rule is that the Republicans' position will always be reported as controversial before we know what the Republicans' opinion is. Right. Yes. And that's absolutely correct. You know, and this is what folks are informed by to a large extent when they either bring up or buy into the fake news narrative. The idea that the news is to one degree or another fake. It's things like this in terms of the way that this is reported. Now, as for the actual content of all these documents 
that uh, Trump has declassified, I I question whether or not we'll actually see a lot of it, right? Because, I mean, I wouldn't put it past, based on what we've seen so far, I wouldn't put it past the the folks in charge of the FBI to engage in uh, a late-night shredding party if they haven't already, or you know, perhaps more likely a, a delete key punching session, whatever the case may be. Well, yeah, declassify does not necessarily mean released publicly. Well, sure. It just means that now you'll have to make a FISA request. Well, and and even when even when the stuff gets subpoenaed by Congress, it can end up being redacted heavily at apparently at the discretion of you know whoever the authorities are at the FBI. So this is by no means a uh, catch-all victory from the Trump administration, but it is progress. We'll see what direction it ultimately ends up going. There was a piece uh, over at a publication, the American Institute for Economic Research had a piece breaking down Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, apparently she did a photo shoot where she was wearing a $3,500 suit. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of these types of criticisms and nitpicks. You know, you used to see a lot of that. You see a lot of this with Donald Trump. You see, you see a lot of this with everybody who ascends to any sort of political prominence where we start picking apart, apart their, their clothing and how much their clothing is worth and how often they go to the golf course, how often they take a vacation, this, that, and the other thing in an attempt to try to portray them as somehow being out of touch with the common man. Well, let, can we just acknowledge that, all of them are out of touch with the common man. Like if you're a politician, if you're at the level where you're credibly vying for an office of Congress or above, you are out of touch with the common man. All right. That's just a given. I don't know that we need to constantly demonstrate it by analyzing what they're wearing and what they do when they're on vacation, what have you. Be that as it may, there was this piece here uh, getting into the, the some context specifically regarding Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was interviewed, or she did an interview in a photo shoot last week in which uh, the rising avowedly socialist New York congressional candidate wore a $3,500 suit and shoes while hobnobbing with construction workers. Her opponents lambasted her as just another in a long line of collectivist hypocrites, while Cortez supporters dismissed the criticism as petty. Ocasio herself noted that the outfit she wore was not, in fact, hers and had to be returned after the shoot. This was not her first encounter with pretense, taking ride-sharing firm Uber to task for, quote, exploitation, unquote, on Twitter in early March of 2018, didn't keep her and her campaign from amassing thousands of dollars worth of rides with the company and others between 2017 and 2018, some for distances resulting in decidedly non-living wage fares of less than $1. In fact, though there is no hypocrisy afoot, the significance of Cortez's suit-and-shoes combo the cost of which is more than the monthly salary of the average American as of the second quarter of 2018, is not antithetical to socialism, but completely consistent with it. Intellectuals, after all, academics, activists, and technocrats are the uh, fount from which socialist ideation, theory, and practice spring. Grassroots movements, even in the rare event they are spontaneous, require organization and direction, and this unfailingly comes from those whose lives are spent studying, interpreting, and synthesizing theory. Vladimir Lenin himself wrote uh, that despite the predictions of Marx, that what today would be called popular movements among the people or the workers, uh, history, that uh, a working class do not tend to develop class consciousness. And it goes on to make the case... That in point of fact, it's totally normal. When you look at examples like Mao and and uh, Stalin and 
and Castro and uh, in Venezuela, the leaders they had there. Across the board, you see the leaders of socialist and communist nations surrounded in opulence and wealth. Well, of course, because human nature doesn't change. And well, they need that wealth in order to facilitate their high-minded, better-than-thou running of your lives. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. at this picture embedded in an article we're about to go through here it's the cover of young guns subtitled a new generation of conservative leaders and it was a book written by paul ryan eric Cantor, and kevin mccarthy and i don't know what year this came out judging by the photo is probably quite some time ago but i'm interested i'd be very fascinated to go back and read this book to read what presumably was their kind of manifesto, their vision for what they wanted to accomplish in Washington, D.C., and then compare and contrast it to what has actually been delivered. Uh, there's there's no doubt that there's a big gulf there between intention and reality. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can contribute to the program. Make your voice heard. 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. This piece that I reference here at Reason.com, the headline is, Who Killed the Deficit Hawks? Who Killed the Deficit Hawks? When's the last time you even heard that phrase, deficit hawk? Uh, honestly, I can't recall in recent history when anybody, for any reason, has been referred to as such. Uh, these these people don't exist anymore. Nick Gillespie, writing over there at Reason, Who killed the deficit hawks? A gone, missing species of politician that once was everywhere. Time was not that long ago when most Republicans and even many Democrats were fixated on shrinking annual budget deficits reducing the national debt, and making sure outlays and revenues kind of matched up. They didn't agree on much of anything else, including the proper size, scope, and spending of the federal government, but they did think that voters should mostly pay in the here and now for what they were getting. As Paul Kane notes in a must-read Washington Post column back in 2006, House Democrats marched toward a decisive midterm victory that thrust them into the majority. Then... Their numbers were populated by fiscal conservatives in southern and rural districts who pledged to cut the deficit, as well as anti-war liberals who wanted to bring troops home from Iraq at a time when the war was costing more than $100 billion a year. And he's not kidding. A dozen years ago, the Democrats campaigned loudly and successfully on the proliferate spending of the Bush administration and Republican Congress. In its first six budgets, during which Republicans controlled the federal government's purse strings, Total inflation-adjusted spending increased by 2.4% annually on average, the highest rate since FDR was in office. Federal spending as a percentage of GDP also reached new heights. Everyone agreed this was a bad thing, and the Democrats were able to win partly because they promised to rein in such irresponsible behavior. When she was elected Speaker of the House in early 2007 by her fellow Democrats, one of Nancy Pelosi's applause lines during her first speech in office was actually... 
After years of historic deficits, this 110th Congress will commit itself to a higher standard. Pay as you go. No new deficit spending. Our new America will provide unlimited opportunity for future generations, not burden them with mountains of debt. That is an actual quote from Nancy Pelosi. Can you imagine her saying anything even remotely close to that today? I mean, you can't even find Republicans who are willing to say something like that today, elected to office, elected to Congress. Continuing with Nick Gillespie had reason. That pledge didn't last very long, of course. It never does. Once you get in power, you just tend to lose the inner strength or fortitude to actually cut spending, raise taxes, or some mix of both. As Kane underscores, this was specifically true of retiring Speaker Paul Ryan. Ryan, a one-time preacher about the evil of debt, now brushes aside any questions about how annual deficits rocketed under his watch from about $430 billion in 2015 when he took the gavel to almost $1 trillion as he heads for the exit three years later. Brushes aside, that puts it lightly. Actually, what Ryan does is simply ignore his own role in the problem, which he at least correctly identifies as spending like a drunken sailor. So there's more over at Reason.com. You can read again the headline, Who Killed the Deficit Hawks? And the answer, by the way, that Nick Gillespie gives is you, me, and especially Paul Ryan. <laughs> now, this, this leads us to uh, a similar tangential consideration, which is why did somebody like such as Rand Paul, someone who, I mean, you want to talk about fiscal hawk, you want to talk about a libertarian, because, you know, when we bring up the, the administration of George W. Bush, People forget this because it's inconvenient to recall it, but the Tea Party was as much a reaction to the administration of George W. Bush as it was to the victory of Barack Obama and the actions that Obama took early in his his reign, in his administration. It really was a bipartisan reaction to both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. And for George W. Bush's part, his contribution to the advent of the Tea Party was as articulated by Nick Gillespie over there at Reason. It was the the increased spending, the increased size and scope of government, you know, lest we forget what Medicare Part uh, D that they came up with, the prescription drug program. I mean, all of that ran completely counter to the rhetoric that folks such as those you hear over this very air. I remember Rush Limbaugh very specifically. One of the things, you know, my a quick aside regarding my political coming of age, Rush Limbaugh played a very substantial and founding role in the formation of my conservative identity. And part of what I found appealing about Limbaugh was the way in which he cast a vision for what the world could look like if, Republicans ever gained control. Now, this was in the context when I was first listening to him of the Clinton administration. And so, you know, this was an era from a from a right wing Republican conservative perspective. These were the dark times, right? Because Republicans didn't control anything early on. They were completely out of power. They certainly went in a majority. They certainly had no institutional control. And the notion was, if we get a Republican president, if we get Republican control of Congress, if we get the three legged stool, then then we can see this marvelous nirvana of limited government constitutional uh, republic small r republic take shape and then enjoy the fruits of that endeavor well of course george w bush 
and Republican control of everything during his administration was the political realization of that promise. And after the political realization of that promise, the question became, all right, when do we get to the, the delivery of all the things that were promised? When are we actually going to see a reduction of these entitlements? And when are we actually going to see reform that results in, a, in the cutting of deficits and indeed the producing of surpluses in order to pay down the debt, in order to bring things under control and to, and to limit the scope of government? And, of course, none of that happened. And the frustration of conservative voters is a large part of what led to the Tea Party, along with the election of Barack Obama. And so you would think that after all of that, after the disappointment of George W. Bush, after the, the, the years of the Barack Obama administration, that when it came time to put forward a nominee on the Republican side to take our party into the future, we would lean towards somebody who actually embodied those Tea Party ideals of constitutionally limited government, uh, personal uh, responsibility, fiscal responsibility, uh, and free markets. And I I don't think there's a whole lot of question. I don't think you can come up with a a very sound argument that any candidate would have been a better representation of those values than Rand Paul. Rand Paul, who, you know, son of Ron Paul, who has made his name and cut his teeth in the Senate as an outspoken and sometimes theatrical advocate for these ideas. And yet his campaign fizzled quickly and went absolutely nowhere in 2016. And so the question is why? How do you explain that? And Tom Mullen, writing over at Huffington Post of all places, has an explanation that rings extraordinarily true. And this was actually written during the campaign in September of 2016. 2015. 2015? Oh, okay. It was updated in 2016. I see that here. So, yeah, this is extraordinarily prescient. This guy needs to be credited, like he needs to be referred to as Prophet Tom Mellon from, from this day forward. Rand Paul's campaign actually showed faint signs of life in the last ABC Washington Post poll, and again, this is in 2015, where his 5% showing has him within striking distance of Jeb Bush and every other candidate besides Donald Trump and Ben Carson. That's little consolation considering the poll shows Carson at 20%, and rising sharply, and Trump doing the same at 33%. There has been a lot of digital ink and hot air expended on why Paul fell from the GOP lead as, quote, the most interesting man in politics, unquote, to a long-shot candidate fighting for scraps with the Walkers, Bushes, and other members of the rejected establishment. There have been reports of infighting among the campaign staff, Paul's failure to energize his father's activist base, and even his reluctance to woo big-money donors. One would think that that last shortcoming would be appealing to voters fed up with Washington insiders, but apparently not so for Paul. The most prevalent theory is that in trying to avoid alienating mainstream Republican voters while campaigning his father's libertarian platform or championing it, Paul has alienated both groups, libertarians and traditional Republicans. That sounds good, but it doesn't add up. The painful reality for Ron Paul supporters is they represent an electoral rounding error. They are loud, proud, and committed to the libertarian message, but in the end, they are 2 million votes. The GOP nominee won the nomination in a landslide in two straight elections without a single vote from them. Rand Paul knows that will be uh, true this time around, too, thus his attempt to woo more mainstream voters. Paul's supporters scratch their heads at this, 
If Republican voters are truly fed up with the establishment GOP leadership's failure to cut government spending, reinstate constitutional limits on the executive branch and federal government in general, and restore some semblance of a free market economy, why isn't Paul their guy? He's better than every one of those on every one of those issues than any other candidate who has run for the nomination in decades. The answer is Republican voters don't really want those things. Again, the answer as to why Rand Paul was not the guy in 2015, according to Tom Mellon, and I, I think this is pretty beyond dispute here, is that Republican voters don't actually want those things. They're fed up with the GOP leadership, but not because it failed to make government smaller or less powerful. They're fed up because it hasn't made government bigger in the areas they want it to be bigger. Think about what has resonated with Republican voters. It's been exactly the opposite of what Paul proposes. Trump and Carson supporters have responded enthusiastically to promises of a bigger, more powerful federal government led by a stronger-willed leader who will trample constitutional limitations on his power, run a command economy, and pursue an activist foreign policy. They want more border security and less immigration, whether illegal or illegal. The real resentment towards immigrants is the competition they bring for jobs. Crime and welfare make good headlines, but deep down everyone knows this is just protectionism in the labor market. It's the opposite of free markets. Second only to his immigration stance is Trump's protectionist stance on international trade. Trump views the world economy in the same way 18th century mercantilists viewed it, as a zero-sum game with winners and losers. His answer? Higher taxes in the form of tariffs to prevent less uh, efficient domestic manufacturing. Adam Smith wrote a seminal economic treatise to refuse refute precisely this worldview and he goes on to lay out his case and again this is him writing in 2015 a year before donald trump was the selected nominee of the republican party explaining why that was going to happen and the reason is republican voter basically this is my characterization of his conclusion basically republican voters are lying republican voters are lying when they say they want smaller government lesser government you know they, they want a, uh, a deficit cuts and they want to do something about the national debt and reform entitlement. All of that is a lie, which is news to me because I've been in the thick of this thing since 2008, 2010, and everyone around me was pretty convincing in their espoused desire to see movement on all of these issues, but that has completely evaporated in the past couple of years. Well, I wouldn't call it news to me. I mean, I read this article three years ago and didn't realize how correct it would be at the time. But, you know, I've said before, like, talking to callers to this program, your position does not sound very conservative. Right. And this explains why, because they don't actually want a conservative government. Yeah, the conservatism, the idea of being a conservative, it's one of those words like so many words in the English language that it's, it takes its meaning in the eye of the beholder. It means what you want it to mean. And so when people say, when a, when a caller, for instance, says, I'm a conservative, I hear one thing, they mean something different and vice versa. When I talk about being conservative, it obviously means something totally different. To me, apparently, than it does to the people who I'm saying it to, that that bears out in the, these disparities in terms of actual priority and actual desire for the direction of policy. Well, and when I came of age, you know, turned 18 and was interested in politics and majoring in political science, like I considered myself a member of the Tea Party. I was I was all about it. But now, 
10 years later, it's like you see the same people who were involved in the Tea Party movement now going for Trump. Right. And I think differently. So it's like, what was the cause of that branch? Yeah. And I think it was, do you want big government or are you consistent and do you want small government? Yeah, well, I have some additional thoughts on this we'll get to when we return. We'll also take your calls, talk to Dan and Hopkins when we come back. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. We were going through a couple of articles, one uh, regarding questioning where the deficit hawk's gone. And, you know, that brought to mind the question of deficit hawk. I haven't even heard that term in at least two years, two, three years from Republicans or Democrats. Nobody seems to be concerned about the deficit or the debt. And then a piece from 2015 written by a... Uh, Tom Mullen over at the Huffington Post that very presciently analyzed why Rand Paul's campaign wasn't going anywhere and why he was not likely to be the Republican nominee for president in 2016. And we've been, you know, going over, you know, pulling that forward to today, asking the question, was the Tea Party even legitimate? Like, were the, were the, claimed interests and priorities of all those folks and all those speakers and all those groups who called themselves the Tea Party, constitutionally limited government, uh, fiscal responsibility, free markets, was any of that sincere or was it just a big joke? Was it just a, a response to Barack Obama, a politically motivated response that wasn't actually seeking to affect any of these things in actual policy? And, you know, one of the, one of the things that just as a personal anecdote that I found so mind boggling in 2016, as I was watching the remnants of the Tea Party fully dissolve into the, the MAGA coalition was having conversations behind the scenes with people in, in prominent positions in organizations like, you know, Tea Party Patriots, for example, and, you know, having those conversations along the lines of what is going on? How, how are you guys getting behind this guy when he stands in opposition to everything you've been preaching for the past eight years in terms of everything Barack Obama's doing wrong, everything the Republican establishment's doing wrong? And the answer that I got from, you know, the folks who were uh, leading that organization, the answer that I got was, hey, this is where our members want to go. Well, okay. <laughs> Okay, well, how do you explain that? Now, I can't, I can't put that on them to somehow explain it, but I personally am interested in it. How are your members, how are the rank and file? So, again, were, was everybody just lying? Was the Tea Party never sincere? Was it never real? Was it never actually about constitutional limitations and fiscal responsibility and free markets? Was, were those just buzz phrases? Fascinating to me. Let's talk to Dan in Hopkins on another issue. Welcome to the program. Sure, thanks. Um, you know, just to your point, I think it's because uh, why Trump and not, I, I just don't think there was any candidate. I was a Cruz guy. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any candidate that could demonstrate the leadership ability, the chutzpah, 
And I look back and I think uh, Cruz would not have been able to do what Donald Trump has done as president. And the omnibus bill was a disaster, but that was a bill that the military was hanging in the balance. And Trump never wanted to sign it. I think Trump is pr- proving to pr- to lead far more conservative than any other president probably in a hundred and some years in America. And... Um, I don't think Cruz, and certainly not Rubio, who I'm really wondering about his, I don't know, about his conservative uh, fortitude, would not have done, not even gotten close to have done what Donald Trump has done. And that's, again, he wasn't my first choice, but pleasantly, thank God, surprised that he has stood in a conservative fashion. But I don't want to take much of your time, but I, I'm a contractor. I, uh, I work in some section in housing. Mm-hmm. I have a customer who is a landlord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is absolutely pathetic. It is pathetic that our system uh, of government has devolved to such... Um, <laughs> there's a guy moved... I mean, he kicked out one tenant finally. He wasn't paying her portion of the rent, which was only $180 out of a fourteen hundred and some dollar a month rent. Mm, good Lord. Four children, one of one was from one father, three were from another person. I won't even call them fathers. And the taxpayer is on the hook. Well she was kicked out and, and systematically did some damage to the broad uh, to the house on the way out, which is common. Right. I shouldn't know I shouldn't say common. I mean I, more than it should have. More more common than one might otherwise expect. Right. Well, right. The guy that's moving in has a girlfriend, not married, uh-huh. for, you know, for economic reasons, right? Hand uh-huh. government nanny state handout reasons. Uh-huh. Four kids, $1,530 a month rent in North Minneapolis, and the taxpayer pays 1430 of it. Wow. 1430 Man. of it. I got to tell you. Where is the media? They're not anywhere to be found. They're not anywhere to be found to hold government to account to investigate this. I mean, There's honestly, I, I appreciate the call, Dan. We're up against a break. Yeah. I appreciate your holding to, to give us your, your anecdote. But in all honesty, I don't think I can blame. And I think this is a mistake that we make as on the right side of the political aisle is we cast side eye at the tenants. We cast side eye at the beneficiaries of these programs and thing and and look down upon them but if i was in their position like if i had the opportunity to have what is that like 90 percent 90 95 percent of my mortgage paid for by somebody else if there was a method that i an application that i could fill out where there was even a remote chance that 90 to 95 percent of my mortgage could be paid for by some other person you better believe i would be filling out that application why because I support, you know, the given program? No. I think I think it's terrible. But because as a manager of my family's financial affairs, I have a responsibility, you might call it a fiduciary responsibility, to ensure that I'm providing to the best extent that I possibly can. And if that calculation, if the if the context is such where having the vast majority of my rent covered 
by a Section 8 program is the solution to my problem that I find myself in and not being married when I otherwise would be in order to qualify for programs is the best solution I can come up with to, to provide for my family, you better believe that's the choice I would be making. And so the the where we should be casting our side eye and casting our uh, recriminations is not at the folks who are taking advantage of these programs, but at the people who are conceiving of them and implementing them and then keeping people in generational poverty and generational dependence by only making the offerings more attractive rather than less so. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk. So I need to touch back on this whole Kavanaugh story and the allegation of sexual assault from 30 years ago that has been brought forward by Christine Ford. This latest condition that she's placed, because apparently she's been asked to testify in the confirmation hearings in the Senate, and her response has been to set as a condition, a prerequisite to consenting to testify that the FBI conduct an investigation of these 30-year-old's accusations. And just, you know, listen to this story here at CNN. And then, you know, I have some I have some thoughts, you know, some off-the-cuff thoughts. The woman accusing Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault says the FBI should investigate the incident before senators hold a hearing on the allegations. In a letter addressed to the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, and obtained by CNN's Anderson Cooper 360, Christine Blasey Ford's attorneys argue that a full investigation by law enforcement officials will ensure that the crucial facts and witnesses in this matter are assessed in a nonpartisan manner and that the committee is fully informed before conducting any hearing or making any decisions. Yeah, you know what else would have ensured that? Saying anything about this over the course of the last three decades. That might have ensured that we could have a fully nonpartisan consideration and a full awareness of the facts leading into this. The letter from Ford's lawyers notes that despite receiving a stunning amount of support from her community, Ford has also been the target of vicious harassment and even death threats and has been forced to leave her home. We would welcome the opportunity to talk with you, the ranking member Feinstein, to discuss reasonable steps as to how Dr. Ford can cooperate while also taking care of her own health and security, the letter from Ford's lawyers said. Ford's attorney, Lisa Banks, told Cooper that Ford will talk with the committee but added she is not prepared to talk with them at a hearing on Monday. She will talk with the committee, Banks said. She is not prepared to talk with them at a hearing on Monday. This just came out 48 hours ago. That's the lawyer. This just came out 48 hours ago. Again, this isn't something that happened to you. Like, you knew about it for 30 years. It just came out 48 hours ago. It just leaked 48 hours ago. It was just utilized for political effect 48 hours ago. And the idea, and it continues. Asking her to come forward in four or five days to sit before the Judiciary Committee on national TV is not a fair process, the lawyer said. If they care about doing the right thing here and treating this seriously, as they have said, then they will do the right thing and they will properly investigate this, and she will work with them in that investigation and also to share her story with the committee, her lawyer, Banks, said on Tuesday night. It's not fair. 
it's not fair for her to be expected within four or five days to show up to a Senate confirmation hearing and actually face the, the person who she's accusing and say publicly under oath what she's accusing him of and answer questions and offer details. That's not fair. But it is fair. It's totally fair to snipe from the shadows with vague accusations about something that happened three decades ago and then demand that it be taken seriously without any sort of due process. And also to demand that it suddenly and rapidly be investigated by nothing less than the FBI after you sat on it for 30 years. Because it's so important. You know what? Here's here's my standard. How about the rest of us take it precisely as seriously as she has? She hasn't taken it very seriously at all. Until 48 hours ago. Until just now. Until it became a moment of political opportunity. That's when she started taking it seriously. So I'm going to go ahead and, and follow her example of taking it just as seriously as she has since 1978. Let's talk to Mike in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. So I'm thinking that this the goalposts have been moved now at least three times. From the letter was sent sometime in the summer, it was asked to be anonymous. Now it's not anonymous. Then she wants, uh, well, anyway, it's not to rehash it, but they just keep moving it back, and it's becoming obvious that these people really don't care about the veracity of a woman's claim because what they're doing is diluting the process and making a mockery of it. Yeah. That you can't, when, when, you know, if you have any brain at all, the first thing you're going to do is go, yeah, sure, whatever, it's coming from a Democrat. Um, it, it, it's uh, it's just sad. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the thoughts, Mike. I, I... I stand rather flabbergasted that this is being tolerated. I'm, I'm increasingly finding myself in agreement with the, the, mo- the most outspoken voices on social media right now that are saying, listen, shut this thing down and just call the vote. Like, why are we even, why are we even having this conversation at this point? You got an accuser who wasn't willing to put her name to the accusation. And then now that she is putting her name to it, she's she has the audacity to put conditions on whether or not she's going to testify uh, against the man who whose process she's obvious. Clearly, the intention of coming forward at this point is to throw a wrench in the gears of the confirmation process. That's her reason for doing it. She cannot argue. You can't make a rational argument that her motivation is something other than political when she hasn't said a word for three decades. It's obviously political, right? And so to to say that, oh, in order for the in order to have respect for the process, in order to treat me seriously, you know, you have to do go, go through my process that I'm going to dictate and have an FBI investigation before I consent to offer my testimony. That's not how any of this works. It's not. If you if you wanted to have your story considered, if you wanted to have an investigation, you had three decades to pursue an investigation. It's not as though Brett Kavanaugh, it's not as though in, on his path to the Supreme Court that he's had zero prominence whatsoever before today. There, were, there was anywhere along the line 
along his track, his career track. If indeed this actually did happen 30 years ago and it was as traumatic as she describes it, there are ample opportunities for her to make her case and to take action and to pursue an investigation and to make hay of this before right now. She chose not to. Why? 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. When we started talking about this sexual assault allegation against Brett Kavanaugh leveled right in the midst, right at the climax of his confirmation hearings in the Senate, I originally compared and contrasted it to the allegations that have been made against Keith Ellison, who, of course, is not only seeking the Office of Attorney General here in Minnesota under the Democratic banner, but also has served as the deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee. And, you know, the qualitatively, when you just look at the merits of each of these accusations examined side by side, it's very difficult to call into question the conclusion that the accusation against Ellison is far more credible and substantial than the allegation against Kavanaugh. And yet you that's not reflected in the reaction from DFLers in this state to those respective stories. In fact, the reaction is reversed from what it logically ought to be, given the credibility and gravity of these different accusations and that is bearing out to some degree in the polling that has been released as of lately there was a a poll that was done about all of the different races that we see shaping up here in minnesota and ellison stands alone as the one democrat who is actually neck and neck for his race from uh, the local abc affiliate democrats have had a vice grip on the office of minnesota attorney general for 47 years but the 2018 race for that job is shaping up as the closest in decades. A uh, KSTP survey USA poll shows Democrat Keith Ellison and Republican Doug Wardlow deadlocked at 41% each. This is anybody's race, said political scientist Stephen Shear. Ellison is vulnerable in a way other Democrats are not. Shear said that is largely due to allegations of domestic abuse made against Ellison by a former girlfriend. Ellison has denied the allegations. However, they appear to be having an impact on his campaign when asked if the allegations are a factor and whether they vote for Ellison, 40% said they are a factor and 39% said they are not. The other 21% said they're not sure that 40% is a serious problem. Sure said it's probably not going to go away between now and election day. And right along with this, the uh, folks over at alpha news have engaged in an interesting legal maneuver in order to try to unseal Keith Ellison's divorce records. And they took the step of explaining why they're doing so. And they make an interesting point. They write, Keith Ellison is running to be Minnesota's next attorney general. As is common knowledge by now, two women have credibly accused him of domestic violence. We at Alpha News believe that he is voting or believe that the voting public of Minnesota should know the contents of his sealed divorce proceedings in order to make the most informed choice possible. That is why we instructed our attorneys to file a motion this afternoon in Hennepin County District Court seeking their unsealing. Minnesota media are usually not shy about asking for such things. For example, the Star Tribune expended time and money to get the Prince divorce records unsealed and were successful. 
Apart from clicks, we don't see much news value in the effort, but it's telling that even there, where only purient interest could be said to exist, the court granted the newspaper's request. Several Minnesota media outlets joined forces to compel the public release of documents relating to the tragic disappearance and murder of Jacob Wetterling. This coalition included the Pioneer Press, the Star Tribune, NPR, the Minnesota Newspaper Association, the Minnesota Broadcasters Association, and others. The documents include materials about the family's inner life and dynamics, information Jacob's parents were assured would be kept confidential, but which are now being overridden by the media in the interest of Internet traffic. The material is set for public release two days from now. Surely then, the local media platforms, much larger than Alpha News, would take the logical step of asking for Ellison's divorce records to be unsealed, except they have not, and appear likely never to. Would they have refrained from unsealing these records if Republican candidate Doug Wardlow had credibly been accused of domestic violence by not one but two women? It strains credulity to think they would, and this sort of manifest political preference by Minnesota media is regrettable. That, again, from Alpha News, and, you know, they make a solid point. You know, I will say, I think the notion of we're going to comb through people's family records, their divorce proceedings, in order to try to... to harvest politically useful information seems pretty scuzzy but in a context where the left has done it as a matter of course if this is a thing we're going to do again the theme of tonight is consistency let's decide what the rules are let's decide what the process is let's decide the applicable principles and then apply them consistently across the board regardless of who it benefits or harms politically I guess that's too much to ask for some folks. Let's talk to Henry in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Walter, uh, good evening. This has been such a superb show, even by your normally very high standards. Congratulations. Uh, I'm starting, uh, with respect to uh, Dr. Ford, I'm starting to smell a rat. Um, actually, I smelled it as of Sunday evening, but it just gets more... Uh, malodorous as time goes on. I happen to know, even though I'm not a lawyer, I happen to know that the FBI does not conduct criminal investigations right. as part of a confirmation process. Right, right. What they do is they do conduct background checks in which they collate records and documents and they do conduct interviews. Right. And it's, it's, it's basically a collection of raw data which they don't really scrutinize for accuracy, they don't draw conclusions, and they turn over the raw data in a file mm. to the people who have legitimate access to it, i.e. the members of this committee. And I think the full uh, Senate would get a copy as well if they requ- members requested it. So if I know this, and you know this, Obviously, Senator Schumer and Senator Feinstein and the lawyers representing, the handlers representing Dr. Ford know this. So this sounds to me like a setup uh, to make the Republicans look bad, that they're not taking seriously this poor woman's woman's concerns and allegations. And I think it's setting up a show trial, an even bigger circus than normal on Monday, and a pretext possibly for her not to attend at all, uh, but she does, to give some uh, explanation for why, quite frankly, she doesn't have her story straight. Well, it ought to be called out as such. I mean, I appreciate the call, Henry. I appreciate the comments about the show. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.